Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. I am glad to have Brother Scott Clem back with me today. He's been on the program before, but always enjoy uh, his contributions to the subject of uh, eschatology. And uh, today we're going to specifically talk about the new covenant, the new covenant. Now, this to many of you might seem like a, uh, there's an obvious answer to this, but for many, it's not obvious. And that is, are the new covenant and the new Testament, the same thing. And you might say, well, duh, of course it is. But you know, there are more and more people coming out and saying that the new covenant and the new Testament are not the same, that the new covenant is something in the future for Israel. Many Baptists are teaching this. And one of the things that I am finding is that um, again, the more we challenge people on dispensationalism, on Israel, uh, they go one of two ways. They either just kind of shut up about it or they can come, maybe they'll come our way on it. But some who uh, want to continue to defend what they believe, they typically go into what I would consider Ruckmanism and uh, hyper dispensationalism. And to me, when you go as far as saying the New Covenant and the New Testament are not the same thing, I'm going to have to put you in the hyper-dispensational camp. Uh, I think there's uh, some major problems with that teaching, but we're going to talk about it and uh, see what the scriptures say. And so uh, I wanted to have Pastor Clem, uh, or uh, I guess you're not pastoring anymore uh, still, but I can still call you that though. But uh, I, I appreciate, yeah. I always appreciate uh, your contributions and what you have to say. So uh, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself in case anyone hasn't come across your channel or your teaching yet. And then um, let's let's talk about the subject of the new covenant. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Pastor. Uh, it's it's great to be on, and uh, always appreciate having these conversations with you. I'm Scott Clem. Been married for going on 19 years and uh, have five kids. Um, I started pastoring about five years ago, and um, currently, you know, uh, you guys say leading leading a, a group of people out of out of our home, and um, and we keep growing, and so I'm I'm figuring out like what to do next, and so um, who knows, we may we may be borrowing another building from another church here soon before long. So that's that's pretty exciting. In the meantime, I'm uh, I went start decided to go back to school, so I'm going back to school full-time through Liberty University and um, in the meantime you know doing debates and, and things like that talking about you know um, Bible stuff which is just a passion of me. Um, when it comes to this you know this disagreement of of is a, is a covenant the same as a testament I mean, that's really the question here and and I remember wrestling with this myself and this is going to be this is going to pertain more to to those who believe that the King James Version is the inspired inerrant word of God. Um, you know, because we believe that every word, you know, is, is purposeful. It means something. And so when you have words like testament and covenant that clearly are spelled differently, clearly have different connotations, um, it, it kind of throws people off. But the trouble there is, is in the context in which those words are used. And as we dig deeper into the background of those words, it becomes abundantly clear that 
that we're talking about the same concept, but um, perhaps from a different point of view. And this, I think this will make sense a little bit more as, as we go on here. For me, when I was first studying this out and, and I was digging into it, the, the Lord really kind of started to open my eyes as I was reading through the book of Hebrews and in particular chapters 7 through 10. So that's kind of a really a, a key fundamental area. And we find, first of all, in, in Hebrews chapter 8 in verses, say, like 6 through 13, um, we have a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is a classic New Testament passage. And, and it's quoted almost word for word here in, in Hebrews. But the interesting thing about what's happening in, in Hebrews chapter 8 is the author is making a case that the new covenant, which was prophesied in Jeremiah, has now been brought to pass by Jesus. And so he quotes that, starting in verse 6, he says, But now he, talking about Jesus, hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much more he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there should uh, no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the land to lead them uh, out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. And it goes on from there. I won't read that, that whole thing. But, but in particular, verse 13 at the end, right? So he quotes that passage, and he gives a little bit of commentary. He says in verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, and he makes the declaration, he hath made the first, the first what? Well, the first covenant. Speaking of the old covenant with Moses, he had made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And of course, it did vanish away in 70 AD. I mean, people do not practice the old covenant today any longer. It is, it is a memory. Um. It's, it's something we still learn from, but but it is it is no more. So the new covenant has been inaugurated by Christ. And then chapter 9, you know, the, the conversation continues. We have these chapter breaks, and we think that maybe, you know, something else is going on. But remember, this is this was a, a letter. There, the, the, the chapter distinctions and the verse distinctions, they, they weren't in the, you know, original autographs, if you want to say it that way. And so he goes on, and he continues in chapter 9. You know, chapter 9, verse 1 says, Then verily the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. And he continues on and he's talking, he, he is comparing the old covenant and the new covenant. And he is demonstrating uh, his assertion that the new covenant has in fact been fulfilled through Christ. And so when we get, for instance, to verse 15, he's going to kind of make some bombshell statements. In Hebrews 9, 15, it says, And for this cause, he, talking about Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. Remember, he just got done talking about that in Hebrews chapter 8. Um, he says that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where, the, for where a testament is, there must also be of necessity um, the death of a testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the book of the law, 
He took the blood of calves and of goats and of water and of scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and the people. What's interesting about Hebrews uh, 9, 19, 18 and 19 here is he is actually quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting from Exodus chapter 24, 8. And you'll notice here, he's in verse 18, he calls it a testament. He is calling the covenant that was made with Israel at Sinai, he's calling it a testament. So that was kind of the first indication for me. It's, wait a second here. We're, we're talking about the same thing because he is pulling almost a direct quote from Exodus chapter 24 and, and um, you know, um, verse 8. But you can even look at the previous verses like from 5 going on through 8. So he is he's clearly, clearly making a, um, you know, a connection be, between these things. So, so what's going on? Why the different language? Well, I started to dig into this a little bit further, and I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to see how many times the Bible uses the word testament and how many times the, the Bible uses the word covenant. So I did a, just a simple Bible search using my Bible software, and I saw that covenant was used 20 times throughout the New Testament, and uh, the word testament is uh, used 13 times throughout the New Testament. When you dig into that a little bit further, you know, I, I noticed that of all of those occasions, all of those 33 occasions, whether it's covenant or testament, it is the same underlying Greek word for every single one of those, for, for every word, whether it's covenant or testament. It's the word diatheke. It, it's not a different word in Greek. And so, you know, this lent, you know, led me to question, well, what's what's going on here? Why why did the New, New Testament translators why did they feel the need to to change some of these words from from covenant to testament and vice versa even though we're dealing with the exact same greek word what's going on here and when i digged into this a little bit more i i, I noticed that diatheke is a, is an interesting word because it's a homonym you know and we're, we're familiar with homonyms um homonyms are, are words that are spelt the same they're pronounced the same but they have they, they can mean different things. So for instance, bark, you know, we might be talking about the bark on a tree, or we might be talking about a dog that barks, you know, it, it's, a, it's the same exact word, but it has two different meanings. And diatheke is the same, uh, it, it, it's really the same concept. It, it can mean an agreement, but it can also mean a will. It can also mean a testament. And so, this is why the word testament is used. Um, now, we can get all nerdy and go deep into this, and I don't think that's necessary at the moment. But to suffice it to say, what's what's going on here is something that I think the, the biblical authors and the translators um, are honoring, something that happens all throughout the Bible. And that is the way that the Bible speaks to us. Um, let me give you an example. We're, we're familiar with um, with fancy term, Aristotelian reticular logic. In other words, we process information logically with logical syllogisms. And there's a classic um, apologetic syllogism that's used. Um, it's, it's called the, the column cosmological argument, which goes like this. Number one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Number three, therefore, the universe has a cause. It's a logical syllogism. It says, 
you know, this is this and this is this, therefore that means this. That's kind of how we think. We think in that way, very logically, very literally, um, or, or in, in a literal, linear way. Um, the Bible, the Bible frames things in, in a different way. Is there log logic? Yes. Is there reasoning? Is there syllogisms? Absolutely. And we'll find more of that in the New Testament. But what we also find is we, we find a lot of different repetition in the Bible. Um, and, and it's saying the same thing, but it's almost saying things in a slightly different way. And so the example that I, that I was, um, you know, I, I just wanted to find an example this morning. The one that I came up with, I gotta find it here, is in Matthew chapter, uh, is this Matthew chapter six? Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter six and verse number 24, I believe is what it is. Um, where Jesus says, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. But as you take a look at that, that verse, what you find is three different concepts that are, that are repeated twice. And this is, this is characteristic of the way that the Hebrews, Hebrew authors portray information. So we see, you know, no man can serve two masters. And at the end of that verse, it says, you cannot serve God and mammon. It's saying the same exact thing, pretty much, but it's saying it from a slightly different angle, and it gives you a full orb picture of what the author wants you to, to understand. We see the same thing. It goes on for either he will hate the one, and that corresponds later on with and despise the other. And then in the middle, he will uh, he'll love the other. And then the second part of that, or else he will hold to the one. Love the other and hold to the one. It's saying the same thing, but from a slightly different angle. And it gives you kind of this, this full orb picture of things. And this is common. I mean, that's just one example. You can find this all throughout the Bible, and in particular, the Old, the Old Testament over and over. And I believe that's what's going on in the New Testament when, when it's talking about the New Covenant and New Testament. Saying the same thing. It's like, it's like music from two different speakers, stereo sound. They're both playing the same music. But one is different from the other, just slightly. And it gives you this, this full sense of the music in a way that you couldn't see it before. And that's what I believe is happening in the New Testament as well. So when, we, when you dig into all of these different words, um, you, you look at all of these passages, you look at their context, it becomes very clear that the New Covenant is what's being referred to. It's why we, you know, the Bible separated between the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. And the new covenant has, in fact, been inaugurated by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we, you know, we celebrate that in, in the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus, you know, when he, when he, um, before he died, he, he took the cup. This thing found in Matthew chapter 26, like verse 26 through 28 or something like that. You know, this is the, 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 the new testament in my blood. This is the, this is the new covenant. What was Jesus doing? Well, he was doing what Hebrews says, and that is he was he was shedding his blood to inaugurate the new covenant, the New Testament, bequeathing the will of the Father, of which now we are beneficiaries and we enter into through faith. And so that that in a nutshell is um, what I believe is is going on. And so I'll, I'll just kind of pause right there. Um, and, yeah. Um, and Pastor Tommy, if you have any anything you want to add, go go ahead. No, you know, you make a lot of good points. And, um, you know, the, the thing is, if somebody is going to claim 
that the New Testament and the New Covenant are different, you know, they have to like actually display, you know, where that's different from the text. And they're not doing that. And so the um the thing that the Jews were very familiar with, and we still talk about today, are the covenants. You know, people are still talking about the Abrahamic covenant and all that. But Jesus Christ, that Jesus ushered in that new that new covenant, that new testament. He he brought it in. And this was one that was prophesied that was going to come to the house of Israel. And it I find it astounding how uh, people literally have taken the focus of the new covenant off Christ, which is who God made it with. Just like God made a covenant with Abraham, just like God made a covenant with David. God also made a covenant with Jesus Christ and they need to unite around Christ to be a part, a part of that new covenant because they broke the old one and it, it vanished away. It, it literally vanished away. And so, yeah, you referenced uh, Matthew 26, 26 says, and as they were eating, uh, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks to them saying, drink ye all of it for this is my blood of the new Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. This is repeated in Mark. It's also repeated in Luke. In 1 Corinthians 11, it refers to this. These are all the places where it uses the word testament. Um, it's, it's referring to that, uh, that very thing. So the thing is, when we get to Hebrews 7 and 8, and we're reading about this new covenant that's specifically talking about the blood of Christ, why would we not connect these things? And that's the thing, too. If you ask most dispensationalists, you know, hey, why don't we sacrifice animals today? Well, because we're in the New Testament. And where do you go to prove that? You go to Hebrews chapter 9. Like you, and, and you're right. The chapter divisions weren't there. We are on the same subject when we go from chapter 8 to chapter 9. And there's not a New Testament Christian in the world that's not gone to Hebrews chapter 9 to prove why we don't need to sacrifice animals why it's the blood of Christ that cleanses from sins. So, um, you know, to try to separate what Jesus spoke of, I mean, we literally, one of our two ordinances in Baptist churches is the Lord's Supper, where, I mean, we're literally remembering the New Testament that Jesus Christ brought in. And to then go to Hebrews and make it not about us, I think is astounding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I understand where people get get confused um, with with some of the language. So the passage in, in Jeremiah 31 that's repeated in Hebrews 8, it, it says, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah in those days. All right. So, so put that put that on on on, you know, one side for just a moment. We also know elsewhere in, in the Old Testament talking about this new covenant that would come. Um, so, for instance, in, in Isaiah 49, in verse 8, it says, Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in the day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth, to cause, uh, to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth, and to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, and they shall feed in the ways of and their pastures shall be in the high places. 
and it goes it goes on from there. The, the, the point of emphasis is that that the, the Messiah would be a covenant for the people. So again, we have these again those, those it's like a stereo um, you know two different speakers. One saying I'm going to establish this covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The other is saying I'm going to be a covenant for the people. The Messiah is going to be a covenant for the people. And this is this is characteristic of what the biblical authors do. It's giving you two different angles of the same exact subject so that you have a 3D full orbed picture of what exactly is going on. So Jesus was in fact a covenant for the people, but did he make the covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah in those days? Well, who were the disciples? Were they Gentiles? No, no, they were Israelites. Who, who were the thousands of people that were saved at Pentecost? Were the Gentiles? No. In fact, every single person from Acts 1 through Acts 7, they were all believing Israelites, all believing Jews. Um, the, the, the people that came at Pentecost from the various different nations, all right? They, 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 I mean, we know that um, while it is true that the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, they were scattered, they were intermixed among the Gentiles, there was still some, and we see that even in the New Testament, that were from the various different tribes. Um, all that said, what we, what we find with the New Covenant, with the New Testament, is in fact this covenant is made with those people. And, and, the, and what happens is, is that Gentiles are grafted in among them later on that we see in Acts chapter 10. And so, the, you know, what's the evidence of that? Well, look at what the promises are. I mean, what, what, is, what does Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 say? Well, it, it, tells, it tells us that, you know, that those people are going to have, uh, the, the Spirit's going to indwell them. Um, they're going to, they're going to know God in a personal way. They're going to be taught of the Lord. He's going to write, you know, he's going to give them a new heart. He's going to write his laws upon their hearts. And he is going to give them the complete forgiveness of sins. Right? Mm. Now, even, even if, you know, some people say, well, wait a second. I, I don't know about this law written on my heart business and, and all of that. Let's just look at the obvious, what we would say in our own Christian circles. When a person gets saved, what do they get? They get the complete forgiveness of sins and they get the Holy Spirit indwelling them, which teaches them. All right. Jesus said that in John chapter 14. John also talks about, about that in 1 John chapter 2. You know, this the same um, anointing that you've received teaches you all things and you don't need that any man should teach you. That doesn't mean that there isn't value in human teachers. But it means we have the Holy Spirit who does teach mm -hmm. us. Those are all promises of the new covenant. Um, we are beneficiaries of that. We are, we are living in the fulfilled promises of those things. And there's a point to be made that we haven't necessarily received the fullness of those promises. I mean, we're still these bodies of flesh. But that said, it doesn't take away from the fact that the covenant has been inaugurated. And as a result, the promises have gone forth and we are beneficiaries mm -hmm. of that. Well, I like how you quoted Isaiah 49, 8 too, where it says, you know, thus saith the Lord in acceptable time, have I heard thee in the day of salvation, I've helped thee, I'll preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people. Well, the apostle Paul, he quoted that verse in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, where he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted in the day of salvation, have I succured thee, behold, now is the accepted time, behold, now is the day of salvation. So obviously... Because uh, people that believe the new covenant is different, they are saying that it hasn't come yet. But Paul, in referencing that covenant, says now is that time. And and I do think we need to go back to Hebrews chapter 8 and, and say a little bit more about that passage. Because uh, 
I almost want, it almost seems like people are getting confused on purpose with the words, but you know, let's just give it to them that maybe some of that's confusing. Uh, but, um, but where, what, what verse is that? So it says, yeah, in verse 11 of Hebrews eight says, and they shall not teach every man, his neighbor and every man, his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall be from the least unto the greatest. And they're like, do you have to teach people to know the Lord now? Well, not if someone is saved because, you know, under that old covenant, what did he tell them? He said, you know, these words that I teach, these that shall be in thine heart. And so they were supposed to talk about these things when they lie down and wake up. And obviously there's still principle there that we should apply, but God gave them that law to help them get to know him. God gave them the temple. God get all those uh, carnal ordinances, the feast, all these things that Hebrew shows are completed. The things that we say we don't have to do today because we're under the new covenant. We don't, all of those things that have changed, those were the things God gave them so they would know the Lord. Now that we have the Holy Spirit, we don't need those things anymore. Those who are saved and in that covenant, they got there through faith. We have the Holy Spirit. So they're, you know, and obviously, you know, there, when you read those passages, there is, there's kind of a, a super ultra literal way that you could look at those things. Uh, but at the same time, when we go to the new Testament and it tells us these things are fulfilled and these things have come, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay for you to, to interpret it that way. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, but that's a key thing. People don't in the dispensation world, they often don't understand the law and what the purpose of it was. And it was intended to teach them. It was intended to teach them that they were sinners. All the things that the law, the feasts, the ordinances were intended to teach. These are all things that we teach when we preach the gospel, that man is sinful. But now how do we teach man that he's sinful through the law? Or do we teach him by showing what Jesus Christ had to do to pay for sins? You know, we do it through the, through the gospel. So these are things that what's frustrating about this Every Baptist will teach these things about the new covenant. They teach all the elements of the new covenant. They have gotten rid of the things of the old covenant. But when you talk about Israel, all of a sudden the new covenant's not here and it's still coming. That's hypocrisy. Yeah. 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 Just the park there again on, on Hebrews, on, you know, 8, 8, 11. And, and I know the angst that people feel, right? Because... If you're going to take that in a very woodenly, rigid, literal way, and you look at it and say, they shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And, you know, we look at that and we say, well, well look, everybody in the world doesn't know the Lord. You know, that, 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 so that can't be fulfilled. You have to remember something here. This is couched in, uh, in the framework of the Old Covenant. Now, remember... This, this was first spoken in the days of the Old Covenant when Jeremiah the prophet uttered these words, all right? So, so this means something in light of that context. And I was ignorant of this. This is something that, that you know, through study and stuff, it, it made more sense as, as I began to, to understand this. But one of the things, you know, to, to put it this way, um, we have to understand the Old Covenant community and what it was like. It's just yes. as you were talking about just a moment ago. And the Old Covenant community truly was a mixed community. It was a community of believers and unbelievers. Not everybody in the Covenant community of Israel 
was was saved, so to speak. They weren't all believers. There was a segment, there was a remnant that was, and, and the rest were not. And and in like manner, remember, with the, the advent of the new covenant and these promises, today we're living in a period in which every single believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He's the you know, it's, it's the first fruits until the day of redemption. But it wasn't like that in the Old Covenant. What do we know in the Old Covenant? Well, there were certain endowed leaders who were given the Spirit to do what? To shepherd the people, to pastor the people. So these were like kings and prophets and priests and judges, right? Namely those. And they were given the Spirit, and the Spirit could come and go upon those people. Think like Samson. And as God moved and worked in those leaders, they would come to know the Lord. So just as you mentioned a, a, a moment ago, um, they would know the Lord through the reading of the law as the priests and, and whoever, um, uh, you know, um, even kings and prophets, they would, they would hear the words of the Lord. They would come to know the Lord in that way. So what's the difference between um, the old covenant and, and the new covenant? Well, now in the new covenant era, Every single person, every single believer, from the least to the greatest, is now indwelt with the Spirit, and we know the Lord in a personal, relational way. The, the New Covenant community, and I know that, you know, our um, Reformed friends would disagree. Uh, you know, the, the, those in the Reformed camps thinks that, think that the church is also a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. I do not agree with that. At the heart, the, the New Covenant community is made up of believers only. Everybody, everybody who makes up the New Covenant community is saved and has the Holy Spirit. Every one of them. That doesn't mean that people in our physical churches, that everybody is saved. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that those who really truly belong to the New Covenant community, every single one has the Spirit and they know the Lord. And this is a fulfillment of, of, of it, it's a difference. It's a difference between the old covenant community and the new covenant community. Whereas you had certain endowed leaders who had the spirit telling people to know the Lord, come this way. You know, this is the way, walk ye in it. Versus the new covenant community. And now everybody from the least to the greatest has the Holy Spirit indwelling in them and knows the Lord in a personal way. I mean, we even talk about that when we're witnessing, you know, sometimes, you know, to have a personal relationship with the Lord. I mean, we, we use all the same language. We just have it connected to the new covenant. Um, so it's not talking about everybody in the world is going to be be saved or, or, or anything like that. I mean, there will come a day when the world is filled with believers only. All right. And so there's, there's a, a greater manifestation, a greater fullness. Um, you know, that will happen uh, later on. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it's that it's true right now. The new covenant community is here, and everybody in the new covenant community, from the least of the greatest, knows the Lord and has the Spirit indwelling in them. Yep. Well, and I think something too that you know, and you touched on this that people have to understand is, you know, yeah, as New Testament Christians, we're not always that familiar with the old covenant community and what it was like because we've we've never been under it. But the people that are being written to here in Hebrews were. So often we do in our in our scripture reading, we read all of Paul's epistles that were written to Gentile churches that were never under that old covenant. And, and then when we get to Hebrews, we kind of still have that same mindset. But this is a, a unique group that he's writing to. This is a people who were under the old covenant 
while it was still a thing. And here's the thing about it too, is in verse 13, it says that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away, meaning it hadn't completely gone away yet. So, well, what does that mean? Well, we find out when we go to chapter nine, again, we, we should already know if we know what the old covenant is, but in the old covenant that it had, you know, ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary for there was a tabernacle made the first wherein was a candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary after the second, the veil of the tabernacle, which is the holiest of all. And, uh, you know, and then it's, it's just naming off all these different things that were in there. We're all familiar with these things. The table of showbread, the tables of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, everybody's familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. Well, here, let me just give you all a little bonus, uh, a bonus proof text that you can use when talking about this. In Revelation eleven nineteen, it says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of his Testament. All right, so obviously the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark of the Testament are the same thing. So, you know, having said all that, that during this time when this was written, even though Jesus Christ had come, shed his blood, we can see this in the book of Acts. They were still hanging around the temple. They were still, even the early Christians, they were practicing many of the things of the temple. And I, I believe it hadn't been fully revealed that God was done with it, but um, those things were still there. Those elements were still there. Those rudiments, those things, they were all still there. And so that's why 70 AD is when we get the full manifestation, the full confirmation, the finality. And so uh, we don't have a continuing city anymore. We seek one to come. Everybody's still talking about praying for the peace of Jerusalem, which if you read Psalms, I think it's uh, whatever, uh, whatever that chapter is, it says, because the house of the Lord, you know, I will seek thy good. The house of the Lord is not in Jerusalem anymore. We're in the, we're in the new covenant that if you want to pray for Jerusalem, I'm fine with that. But the house of the Lord's not there. You're praying for it for a completely different reason than what they called for in Psalms. So, um, everyone agrees with all of the, if, when we start preaching about the elements of the new covenant, that it's a one-time sacrifice, that's Hebrews 9, that it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, that's Hebrews 9. All of that is in context of the new covenant that he's trying to get these people that are under the old covenant of, and the fact that they get it all wrong because of they don't understand, they should no longer teach every man know the Lord. They obviously just don't understand what it was like under that old covenant because they've never been a part of it. So you raise up a, a good point, and that is it's it's really problematic if you if you do not think that the new covenant has been inaugurated. Again, covenants are inaugurated. You know, we're talking about covenants of this nature. We're talking about covenants being inaugurated with blood. Um, is Jesus going to have to die again? Well, we know that that's not going to be the case. Mm. What, 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 you know, as far as the promises that, that even we have now, I mean, how are they going to be any greater in the future? I mean, we understand that there's going to be a, a fuller consummation, of course, but um, it doesn't take away from the fact that those promises are, are here now. Um, another key passage, and we won't dig into this as, as deep, but I just want to throw it out there for, for your listeners, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, key, key portion, in fact, 
um, the Apostle Paul actually uses a, a key, he, he does some creative things, um, you know, referencing texts in Ezekiel to talk um, about how the new covenant would be written, you know, he, it would be written on our hearts and, and whatnot. Well, he uses some of that same language in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But in particular, he goes on and he uses the, the word New Testament and Old Testament again, talking about how the ministration of the New Testament is now here, that, that Paul is a minister of that in comparison to the the old testament under moses and how the new testament is more glorious how the old testament was fading away like the story with moses when he went up in the mountain his face shone and you know his the glow in his face and he covered it up and it, it dissipated over time and he uses that same language to talk about the old covenant and the new covenant how the old covenant was certainly glorious but that glorious was fading away and it was to be done away, um, as it says in verse seven. Um, and so that's a that's a wonderful passage also to dig into to um, to see this comparison of the old covenant and the new covenant. And again, we don't have the language anywhere in the Old Testament that uh, of the old covenant being called a, a testament in that regard, right? But we know that's what's being referenced here um, because. It, I mean, he, he says it specifically. He talks about Moses and and, and, and and all of these things. Verse 7, I just want to read this. I think this is good. But if the ministration of death written and engraven on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, the, uh, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit, talking about the new covenant, be rather glorious for for the ministration of the uh, of condemnation talking about the law um the law condemns us if the ministration of co uh, of condemnation be glory much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth in other words the new covenant is better which is the whole you know one of the main emphases uh there in the book of hebrews for if that which is done away, what is done away? The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the law. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Glorious. Well, what remains? The covenant that Jesus made. The covenant that we are now in today. The new covenant whereby we have these exceeding great and precious promises. Um, that's what remains today. The Old Covenant, it's done and it's gone. It was glorious, but it's not as glorious as what we have today. Amen. Yeah. And that that is such a fantastic passage right there. And again, everyone everyone agrees there, there's not a Baptist on the planet that doesn't agree with that and teach these concepts. But here's really what it comes down to is you know, with when it comes to their rhetoric, okay? When it comes to their rhetoric they use you know, they're constantly pontificating about how the church is not Israel and, you know, God's not done with Israel, which, you know, what Paul just explained there, that passage you just went through is one of the reasons it's so foolish to claim or to try to claim that we teach that God, God broke his promise to Israel. No, we're saying God kept his promise to Israel. God fulfilled these things with, with Jesus Christ, but. Um, so, you know, it, it is uh, the more we study, I study prophecy, the more I'm realizing, you know, what has been fulfilled, you know, or how 
there's more that's been fulfilled than people realize. But the problem is that they have, while they're doing all their slogans of God's not done with Israel, the church never replaced Israel, all that stuff. Um, you know, while they are even scoffing at the idea of a spiritual Israel, it does create a lot of problems for them if the new covenant is here. And if we are part of it, when you have Jeremiah chapter 31, which is what Hebrews is quoting, and it says, you know, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write them in their hearts. And it'll be their God and they should be my people. So it says, I'm going to make that with the house of Israel. That's spelled out. But here's, and so because they're always just saying the church isn't Israel, Israel didn't, or the church didn't replace Israel, all that kind of nonsense. What they're ignoring is the fact that no, the New Testament shows us that uh, there was a mystery of this inclusion of the Gentiles. That, you know, that was a mystery that they did not understand that was revealed, you know, in the, in the New Testament that was revealed through men like Paul, not a, not a repl us necessarily replacing them, but us being included with them, with believing Israel. And Romans 11 makes it very clear that unbelieving Israel, they were cut off from the olive tree. So again, it's not that we replace them. We were included with the Israel God made a covenant with. So what we have going on today is we have people because of bad theology, they're looking to a group that are a remnant of, you know, the, those who rejected the covenant, those who were broken off rather than remaining connected to the Jews who were obedient like the apostles and in following their teaching. And so they're, they're trying to make a separation where God removed the separation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, um, I, I don't know where we've gotten this idea that, you know, the the apostles or all of the the Jews, the Israelites that were saved in Acts one through seven, they didn't they didn't stop being Israel. <laughs> I mean, they, they didn't. They they were the ones who believed and received the promises, which is why Paul, who, who was among them, you know, he he says in Romans fifteen eight. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, that's that's Israel, for the truth of God. To do what? To confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Um, we find something similar in Acts chapter 13. Paul goes into a synagogue and he's sharing Jesus to the Jews in the synagogue. And in verse, uh, what is it? Verse number 32, he tells these Jews, he says, we declare unto you glad tidings, that's the gospel, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, he's talking to Jews, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear that these promises have been fulfilled. And, and as you said, you know, we don't, there, there is not a single believing uh, Jew who has ever been replaced by a believing Gentile. Rather, we have been grafted in among them. And that's key language that's in Romans 11. Among them. Among mm -hmm. them. Um, you know, that's that's how the church started out. It started out as that corpus, that core group of believing Israelites. And it spread and it grew. And now we're beneficiaries 
of that, which is the which is the remarkable thing. So so back in like, you know, Jeremiah 31 or in Hebrews chapter eight, what it says, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah those days. That does not preclude at all that Gentiles can come into that covenant anymore that the the old covenant, um, you know, there was a mechanism for which Gentiles could also become part of Israel under the old covenant through proselytization under the law of Moses. That same concept is retained in the New Testament, only we don't have to become a proselyte under the law of Moses getting circumcised and all that kind of stuff. No, we just simply have to express faith in the Messiah. And we, we become part of that covenant community alongside those who preceded us, which started as believing Israel in Christ. Um, I, 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 this thought came across my mind, and I just want to uh, share this again. Um, when we sometimes we get fixated, we think of we see different words and, and in our minds, we think they have to mean different things like with covenant and testament. The, the challenge I want to put out to people is that you can talk about the exact same concept and use different words. And that's what I was trying to articulate earlier. This is something that is found all throughout the Bible in which one concept is talked about. But it's like you're mentally walking around it and looking at it from every which different angle and, and, and getting a different perspective and new uh, uh, different words, words that are, are similar but a little bit different to give that stereo sound. It helps us to do that. And that's what's happening in the New Testament with covenant and with testament. And I believe that's that's by God's design for, for us as English speaking people. Again, remember in the Greek and and. You know, for hundreds of years, when when those believers had the scriptures, they didn't see anything different from covenant to testament. They saw the same Greek word, diopike. Um, so when they saw in Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 28, Jesus says, you know, this is the cup of the new testament as we read it today. They saw diopike, um, covenant. And it's the same thing in Hebrews. They saw, you know, the fulfillment of the diopike that Jesus, you know, fulfilled with his own shed blood. So it wasn't any different for them. We just get hung up because we see these different words and we get fixated, getting super, super literal. They must mean something different. Well, they can. They can mean something a little bit different, but they still refer to the one and same concept. And it gives you this full orb, you know, idea. And that's what makes the Bible so rich. It's not the logical syllogism that we're used to. And that's, I think, what throws us off a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, if you can get a, you know, a pro-Israel guy to stop foaming at the mouth for five minutes and, you know, actually talk and reason with them uh, whenever these things come up, um, you know, and that when they're accusing you of saying God broke his promises, here's what you have to do with these people is say, all right, ex explain the promise to me. Okay. Because how is what I am claiming about us being included in the covenant? causing God to break his promise. And so if you get people to like try articulate what the promise is, typically what you will find them describing is the old covenant promise that the book of Hebrews constantly shows us how the new covenant comes with better promises. How did God, God did not break his promise to Israel. God gave him better promises. God gave him a better covenant. Just look up the word better every time it's used in Hebrews. We constantly see that. And, and so what people do, they go back to the old covenant and they'll even refer to everlasting things. 
And therefore, that covenant can't change. But it's God's not breaking his promise if he does something better. I say it this way. If I give you a, if I promise you to give you $100, and then later, instead of give you $1,000, I didn't break my promise. I gave you something better. And that's what God did for Israel. And in Exodus 40, verse 15, it says, And thou shalt anoint them as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. So wait a minute. Uh, that's talking about an everlasting priesthood of Levites in their generations. So does God, is God now required to have a Levitical priesthood forever or did God do something better? Because the whole point of a priesthood is that there's work that these priests need to do on behalf of the people so they can, you know, be in good standing with God. So did God break his promise when he replaced that with the priesthood of Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek? That's better. Who, instead of making daily sacrifices and annual sacrifice, made a one-time sacrifice. So there's a lot of things like that in the Old Testament you can see that use the word everlasting that every New Testament Christian will admit, well, yeah, we don't have that anymore. So we understand God replaced the priesthood. He replaced the temple. He replaced the covenants. He replaced the promise. But then you start, but then you, when you start talking about the people, and again, it's not that God cast away those who are of faith in the Old Testament, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the believers, but he, he did cease to use a physical people and is now using a spiritual people. But all of those who were ever of faith are included in those promises, will be recipients of those promises because a resurrection day is coming too. Yeah. Um, it, Tommy, can you pull up Isaiah chapter 55? Yeah. And starting in, in verse number three. You had mentioned this a couple times and people people get hung up on this. One of the reasons they get hung up on thinking this covenant is going to be future is because of their fixation of Israel. Mm -hmm. and, and they think that they, they, they have a, a different eschatology. And so, you know, it justifies them thinking that these things aren't the same. But I just want to show you here in Isaiah chapter 55. Again, some of that same language that we've seen before. It says in verse 3, Incline your ear, come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. By the way, that's used in the New Testament as well. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Who might that be? Well, we know that's Jesus. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee. And not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, for the Lord, uh, or for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. And then the famous passage in Isaiah 55, 7. But the point is, is I want you to see, it is, it is Jesus. He is, a, he is um, uh, a covenant for the people, kind of that same concept here. He is the commander. And what does he do? He'll call a nation that thou knewest not. And this goes on in Isaiah. This isn't like a, you know, just a one-off kind of a thing. It, 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 this, this happens over and over and over again, especially in the latter parts of the books of, uh, of Isaiah. Look at um, Isaiah chapter 62. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is great. In verse number, verse number uh, two, it, it says here, notice, 
and the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness. The nations, that's that's us, if you're not a Jew, and, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Well, what, what name might that be? I mean, maybe Christian, I, I don't know. Isaiah chapter 65 says the same same thing. And this is, this is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11. Isaiah 65 and verse 1. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way which was not good after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifice in gardens uh, and burneth incense upon the altars of brick, and so on and so forth. And then uh, I'll close with this in verse 12, if you can jump over to verse 12. He goes on and he says this, talking about unbelieving Israel and believing Israel. He calls believing Israel his servants and unbelieving Israel. Well, you can see how this is contrasted. Verse 12 says, therefore, will I number you to the sword, those that reject Jesus, and you shall all bow to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear. But did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, unbelieving Israel, shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, and, and the servants includes believing Israel. But you, unbelieving Israel, shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. Notice this, verse 15. And you, Israel, shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, his servants. For the Lord God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. In Acts chapter 11, they were called Christians first at Antioch. He that who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from my from my eyes. And the point is, is we, we see these things come to pass. Gentiles haven't replaced Israel. We've been engrafted in among believing Israelites. The corporate nation is no more. The corporate a, a nation rejected Christ. They left their name for a curse. And God, God was true to his word, and he gave them to the slaughter. He, he took care of them with the sword. And he gave their name, he left their name to his chosen who are now called by another name. I don't know how much clearer that that can be. I mean, it just, for, for me, this just speaks very clearly. The fact that we are called Christians today and, and, and everything that has transpired is, is nothing else but just the word of God coming to pass, that he has been faithful to his promises. His promises, we're not waiting for these future things or for these things to happen in the future but rather the recognition that they have been brought to pass and now we are living on the in, uh, in the unfolding narrative um you know where we await the consummation of all things yeah man that that is powerful stuff right there that just can't be refuted but but yeah well we could go on and on talking about this but i guess the final thing i i want to say about this is what what we're kind of seeing happen is the in the parable of the prodigal son, you have the older brother that represents Israel for sure. 
that did not like seeing, you know, his wayward brother that he felt just committed too many sins, uh, you know, being received by the father. And I I'm afraid that Jew, many uh, unbelieving Jews, they, they did, they had that mentality where to them, the promises were not only God doing great things for them, but excluding the younger brother, excluding the prodigal. And we've got Baptists out there who feel like, you know, they've bought into that, that God can't keep his promise to Israel without excluding us Gentiles from something. And it's like, no, that is completely contrary to everything that we read in the New Testament. God broke down that middle wall partition. You know, he's, he made a way for all of us and he's made both one and everything that we have been claiming. I mean, we have scriptures literally spelling this out. I've never even used that argument before about being called by the new name, but yeah. And that's why we don't call ourselves Israel anymore. You know, Israel, the individual Israel, the man was a, he was a flawed person. He was, he was another sinner, but God made promises to that man. God made promises to that individual and that nation of one that was going to come from them. And he came and his name was Jesus. And so we name ourselves with him. We identify with him. And so as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you know, we are, you can't disconnect this from Israel because Jesus Christ came from Israel. He was the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. And so the reality is it's dispensationalism and the teaching that excludes us from the promises. They're the ones that are saying God broke his promises. They're saying God broke his promises from Isaiah chapter 65 when it comes down to it. So a lot of really good stuff. I appreciate you coming on and talking about this. You have any uh, final words for the audience? Yeah, I, I just, I echo your comments. I thought that was, that was great. What you just said there. Um, I'll, I'll just kind of close with this. Um, Gentiles could not be blessed unless first the promises were confirmed unto Israel. And that is Paul's point in Romans 15, eight through 13, where he, he quotes a litany of other old Testament passages showing how because the Gentiles are blessed and because how now the, the Gentiles trust in Jesus as their king, um, that all is, is um, based upon the fact that God was faithful to his promises to Israel. And so we, we couldn't. That's just one of those things to keep in mind. We as Gentiles could not be blessed were it not for God keeping his promises to Israel. And, and you know, if, you, if this is all striking you know, for the first time, and, it, and it's new to you, and I'm sure you're going to wrestle with these things, but I would just encourage you, go back into those passages and, and study these things out for yourself. Meditate on, on Romans 15, 8 through 13. I mean, it's 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 right there. Um, so anyway, I, I appreciate this. Uh, Pastor Tommy, uh, thanks for, for having me on once again. It's always a pleasure. Yes. Well, yep. Thank you. Appreciate it. And basically what it comes down to it, what's the difference between us and dispensationalists? The dispensationalists are claiming God will keep an inferior promise to Israel. We are claiming that God kept his promise to Israel with new and better promises. God did what he said and more, and we're included. And I'm thankful to be a part of the new covenant. So God bless you all. Thank you for watching this. Make sure you like, share, subscribe, check out. Brother Clem's channel and uh, uh, make sure you uh, subscribe and go watch some of his videos. You'll get a lot of good stuff. So thank you all for, and we will see you all next time. God bless.